Today's podcast is brought to you by Southern Girls Rock and Roll Camp and their Fall Ladies Rock Camp. This October 12th through 15th, women and female-identifying participants over the age of 18 will get a chance to be the rock star they've always wanted to be. In just one weekend, you'll learn an instrument, form a band, write a song, and perform at a showcase. There will also be other band performances, inspiring workshops, and discussions throughout the weekend to keep you motivated. The goal of all this is to raise money for the Southern Girls Rock and Roll Camp, a one-week summer program for girls and gender non-conforming youth ages 10 through 17. The mission of the camp is to support a culture of positive self-esteem and collaboration among girls while building community through music. And hey, if they inspire a few more girls to be rock stars, even better. For more information, go to southerngirlsrockcamp.com. Coming to you live from the ugliest building in the Gulch, uh, it's the Nashville Scenecast. My name's Steve Cavendish. I'm the editor of The Scene. I'm here with Stephen Hale, staff writer, and Andrew Marinus. Andrew is an author, Vanderbilt grad, 92. Uh, very quickly, he worked in the sports information department at Vanderbilt after uh, graduation. Uh, went on to work for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, I believe, in their inaugural season. That's right, 98 season. 98. Uh, I want to come back to that just for That's just when they were still the devil rays. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, came back to Nashville and has worked in sort of a variety of public relations things. But uh, mainly we're in here to talk about Strong Inside, which is the Perry Wallace story and his time at Vanderbilt. Why don't you kind of briefly give us an overview of the book? Okay. So Strong Inside is a biography of Perry Wallace, who was the first African-American basketball player uh, in the SEC Played here in Nashville at Vanderbilt from 1966 to 70. Had been the valedictorian and uh, star center on the Pearl High School uh, basketball team. So hometown kid. Hometown kid. Hometown at Vandy. He's now a law professor at American University in Washington, D.C. And um, it's a story that I first became interested in when I was a student at Vanderbilt. And I wrote about him, uh, you know, back in 1989 uh, for a black history course. And um, just the the strength of this individual and what he had to deal with as a pioneer in the SEC, but then also putting his story into the context of the civil rights movement and elevating it beyond basketball is what I was interested in. And so in 2006, I came back to this paper basically that I'd written as a student, as a teenager, and started uh, an eight-year process of researching and writing um, this book uh, that finally came out in 2014 after eight years of work. Um, and then uh, just last year, I, I created a, a middle school version of the book, too. And so I've been traveling around the country talking to young people about Perry Wallace's story. And that has been just a life-changing experience for me to um, spend time with students. So when did, when did Wallace come to Vanderbilt? He came in the fall of 1966 after, um, as I mentioned, being the valedictorian at Pearl High School. And also his Pearl team won the state championship in 66, which was a, a landmark state tournament in Tennessee history. It was the first year that the TSSAA state basketball tournament included all schools. So this was the first integrated state oh, wow. tournament, and Pearl High School went undefeated that entire season and then went undefeated through the tournament. And um, at Memorial Gym at Vanderbilt won the state championship against an all-white school from Memphis, Treadwell High School. 
And this was on March 19, 1966, which is a um, key date in sports and integration history. It was the same night as the famous Kentucky-Texas Western game Wow! in the NCAA championship. Uh, so Perry went home after winning the state title and watched the second half <laughs> of that landmark basketball game with great interest, obviously with uh, Texas Western having the first All-Black starting lineup uh, in a uh, NCAA championship game, but also Kentucky and Adolph Rupp were kind of recruiting Perry. And he'll say kind of because Rupp never came to visit him, never called him, but his assistants, Joe B. Hall and Harry Lancaster, were recruiting Perry Wallace. So he was watching both teams with great interest that night. So uh, one of the, probably the main reason we reached out to you this week is that you went on a, a Twitter thread um, following a lot of the, what to even call it, the storm surrounding some of the NFL protests that have been going on during the mm-hmm. national anthem. And mm-hmm. you, you had this great, fascinating thread about the parallels between Perry Wallace's story and some of what's going on now. And we were joking before about having you read the tweets. We won't do that. <laughs> but just, I mean, could you kind of elaborate sort yes. of on those points you were making for people who don't follow you on Twitter, which they should do. Um, but <laughs> There's someone that doesn't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> but, I mean, on, it, it was just, there are there really are some yeah. fascinating con- parallels. Quick, quick Twitter plug here, uh, yeah. at TrueBlue24, uh, if you want to follow. There you right. With, with on, no E's, on, T-R-U-B-L-U-24. That's a, a nod to the Milwaukee Brewers, which is the True Blue Brew Crew, my uh, well, favorite I'm, baseball I'm team. I'm sorry about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, it was striking, the similarities between sort of the rhetoric coming from uh, Trump or others, uh, and what Perry Wallace was experiencing when he was uh, pioneering in the late 60s. And, you know, in his case, just stepping out onto the basketball court was a form of protest in its own right. right. You know, I mean, he's the only, first and only African American in the SEC, traveling through the Deep South in the late 60s. I mean, that was a, a dangerous thing to do. And it was, like I said, it was, he was protesting. Uh, decades of segregation, centuries of segregation in, in the South, just by being out there on the basketball court. But then yeah, his, his presence was the offensive thing <laughs> right. to people in that case. People, I mean, yeah, so. right. He thought he was going to get shot and killed just playing in a basketball game or staying at the Holiday Inn in Oxford, Mississippi. They'd walk out the door and there would be someone there to kill him. You know, So that was a very provocative thing, just existing. And then there were times, though, when he would um, speak out you know, proactively about what he is experiencing. Um, most notably, after his last game in 1970, uh, was here against Mississippi State. He sits down with the Tennessean the next day, Frank Sutherland, and talks about the loneliness and isolation that he felt on campus, about being kicked out of a church um, before his first day of class as a freshman simply for being African-American, professors using the N-word in class, teams like Mississippi canceling games against Vanderbilt rather than play against him just the truth about how difficult this experience was. And the reaction the next day was people calling the paper. I talked to Mr. Sigenthaler about this before he passed away, calling to cancel their subscriptions to the paper, criticizing Perry Wallace for speaking out. And then, uh, I don't know what kind of language you can use on your podcast. You're free calling him. We have an an explicit (laughs) rating. We actually encourage it. Okay, so they called him an ungrateful son of a bitch. You know, and, and I remembered that that line was in the book, and it's exactly what Trump called the NFL protesters, right? So there is this, and Perry Wallace certainly wasn't the first African-American pioneer or uh, person who's speaking out against racism that's been criticized by the white culture around them. But, you know, the the line between what Perry experienced as an athlete and what these uh, current athletes are experiencing is is a pretty short line. I mean, it's the same thing happening. Yeah, and what I think is so interesting 
and easy to forget because of the way that we rightfully honor people like Martin Luther King or other civil rights leaders is that it's so easy to forget that these things aren't popular at the time. At the time, it's right. It's so easy to look back and go, man, I would have been there. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, people can't see me. I'm white. It's easy right. to think, that that's so great. You know, everyone, my whole family would have loved that. Everyone I know would have been on board. You know, but that's not mm-hmm. how it was. It's not how it was for Perry Wallace in this instance when... At to to the point you make, what he was doing was literally just being there. You right. Know? It, it's kind of fascinating if you go back and you look at the Gallup polling on certain things from back in the '60s. You know, if you ask people about the the Gallup poll that asked people about the March on Washington, polled at like 23 percent or something mm-hmm. positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ask people if you know protest was a, a wave to advance the civil rights movement, and I think the, the initial number was like 15 percent. I mean, this was not yeah. this was not an idea that had popular kind of coin. Exactly, and I think uh, you know most listeners. Muhammad Ali is a great example of right. that, who, who was taking a stand and very uh, controversial and unpopular stand amongst whites at the time. And then you see him at the Olympics in Atlanta, and he's like everybody's teddy bear, right? right. Um, David David Beauclair in this week's uh, in this week's scenes talking about the NFL protests, and I think the line he used was. You know, by the time of Ali's death last year, you know his passing and his funeral was a was practically a day of mourning in the in the yes, U.S. because yes. he was such a beloved figure. That's a long way from 1965. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and in some ways, this ties back to the whole reason Perry Wallace was recruited to Vanderbilt in the first place. So when he was a 12 year old kid living in Nashville, it was 1960, and he would sneak downtown to watch the lunch counter sit-ins with his own eyes. You know, and that was Reverend Lawson leading those lunch counter sit-ins. He was a Vanderbilt University divinity student and a beloved figure now, you know, unsung right, same, hero of the civil deal, rights right. movement. At the time, Vanderbilt didn't thank him for challenging segregation in Nashville. They expelled him from the university. And so um, that was a point where the no, university was... Noted, say, noted bastion of liberalism, Vanderbilt University. <laughs> right, right. But in response to ex- the expulsion of Lawson and the negative national publicity that came from that... A couple years later, a new chancellor was brought in who was a much more progressive figure, Alexander Hurd. And um, this really ties into everything we're talking about. He understood, as a sports fan, the role that sports plays in American culture. And he wanted to send a signal that the university was changing. And so one of the ways he did that was through sports. And he called Coach Skinner into his office and he said, you know, we've integrated the undergraduate schools now, which wasn't didn't happen until 1964. But he said, you know... So he told Coach Skinner, you can recruit a black player, and in fact, I would like you to. And so he wanted to send that signal through sports, which he knew people were paying attention to, that Vanderbilt was trying to become a different place. And that was the reason why they started to recruit Perry Wallace in the first place. I really, I was going to say, Skinner's a really interesting guy. Uh, I mean, I got to, I got to know him after coaching. Uh, he was a he was a friend of my dad's and, yeah. and, a, and a business partner of my dad. Okay, um, but you know, he's he's not a very flashy guy not, not very flum- but one of the like more soft-spoken people you'll ever you would have ever had a chance to meet um and skin the idea of skinner as a pioneer it you know is just it is just kind of fascinating but it's just such a low-key sort of thing yeah he he was not out there on the forefront of social change or anything but what Perry Wallace will say is he was just a decent guy yeah you know and the thing that really stood out to Perry Wallace was when Coach Skinner came to his parents' house for the visit, you know, to recruit Perry, 
he walked in in the door and he said, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace, which in its own right floored the family. And I, I didn't quite get the significance of that when Perry first told me that. But, you know, he said here his parents born in rural Rutherford County, you know, in the early uh, 1900s, um, eighth grade educations in, in Tennessee or in the South at that time, uh, a white man was not going to call African-American people Mr. and Mrs., no matter how much older they may have been in that situation. But Skinner, when I interviewed him, he said, well, I just called any parents Mr. and Mrs. And so he didn't even understand the significance of what he had just done. And that, that turned, I think if he was alive today, he wouldn't be the type of guy that was on Twitter, you know, <laughs> taking any stand one way or the other but um, was a decent enough man not to um, be ideologically swayed in, in the wrong direction. Um, he, uh, I think his main motivation was he wanted to win basketball games. Um, being from Kentucky, his goal in life was to beat the Adolph Rupp and the Wildcats. You know, and Vandy in 1965 had gone to the Elite Eight. If you talk to old Vandy fans, they'll say they should have gone to the Final Four, but there was a bad call in the last <laughs> seconds of that game against Michigan. And so he thought, you know, bringing Perry Wallace in, they had a chance to compete for national championships. And so in his mind, um, it wasn't for uh, social reasons, but for basketball reasons, he was willing to recruit the best best player in the city. Yeah. So I, I really want to talk to you about the the uh, middle school book as well and your experience talking to children. But real quick, mm-hmm. I wonder if in the experience of writing this book and since it's come out, if you've talked to folks who have changed their minds since back then, who had that experience of, yeah, when this was happening, mm-hmm. I was on what we would call and what I think is the wrong side of it. And and just sort of as a caveat, I mean, I kind of repeat myself, but I know it's easy to, to sort of judge people in the past. Um, I, and and I think it's fine to say that the racism then was wrong. The, mm-hmm. the, the more important thing to and humbling thing to say is that maybe if I was there, I would have been on the wrong side too. And right. that's unsettling. But all that said, have you had, have you talked to people who, who had their minds changed over the years or sort of, does that make sense? Yeah, I've experienced that a few times. Um, and I want to make sure I answer every part of your question. But I'm one, sorry, I was rambling. No, no, no. But, but one thing that came to mind as you were asking it is um, one of the themes of the book that I've started to develop since it came out, especially talking to younger people, is the difference between uh, bystanders and upstanders. And what Perry dealt with in a lot of cases, and I think you you wonder like, well, how would I have been back then? Right. Most people probably would have been bystanders, which is what Perry Wallace experienced and what actually was the toughest part of his experience. And these are the people that weren't, you know, throwing things at him or threatening to kill him or calling him the N-word, but they weren't standing up to anybody else that was doing those things. Right. You it's, know? it's MLK's thing about the moderate whites. You yes. Know, that, that in, in a way, they're actually more of a barrier to change because it just lets it. Yeah. There's a lot more of those people and they, they tolerate what's happening there. They don't become allies. Um, and so Perry's dip most, uh, thing that was hardest for him to deal with, he said was the feeling that he just wasn't treated as a a human being on his own campus, even though he was experiencing a lot of violence on road trips, but that was maybe, uh, you know, a few games a year during a basketball season. But what about the rest of his existence Mm -hmm. on campus? And so there have been a lot of people that have come up at events. I've seen them talk to Perry about it. Some people have mentioned it to me. And, and their sort of realization is that they had just been bystanders. Yeah. You know, and they, they'll tell Perry, I wish I had done more. Um, I wish I had paid attention to what you were going through. And it took them, in most cases, you know, decades to come to that point. And so in That's talking to kids, you, my point is that you can avoid that regret. <laughs> like, reach out to people now. Um and then there have been a few people that have very explicitly said, um, 
maybe I didn't have any African-American friends growing up or I had never spent any time around black people before. And just the experience of, of getting to know Perry or even maybe not getting to know him, but seeing as part of something that mattered to them, the Vanderbilt basketball team, you know, had right. some sort of impact on them. And so he was influencing people that he never even met. Mm -hmm. And when you when you wrote this version of the story for kids, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I have a daughter, she's two, so we're not having these discussions quite yet. But, yeah. you know, it's hard even now. I mean, the news is on this morning and she's talking about the people she's on the news. You know, it's what was that like? I mean, it just seems so vital that you did that yeah. to, to make a version of the story that kids can read when they're in middle school but mm -hmm. as both as a writer and just as a as a father yourself I mean what was that process like of trying to put this into that yeah well um it's something that I never even thought of um but a local author Ruta Sepetis you may know um and she's we, fantastic yeah she's amazing <laughs> it was her idea basically um I, I met her just by chance at Fido coffee <laughs> shop and she said have you ever thought of converting your book to young readers edition and she introduced me to her publisher in New York you know so I've uh, Philomel, which is part of Penguin, so they became the publisher of this book thanks to, you know, Nashville Connection. Um, what ended up happening is we had to convert it from 190,000-ish words to 40,000. So, I mean, <laughs> that in oh, so itself... Almost, almost like editing one of my cover stories. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's a little too close to home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my editor at Philomel kind of took the first hacks at it, yeah. and then I went from there, and it was actually sort of uh, liberating knowing that you know, when you're trying to edit something, you, you guys probably are like me. Like someone suggests you get rid of one comma, you're pissed off at it. Like, yeah. leave my stuff alone, you know. But knowing that I had to cut so much, I couldn't be emotionally attached to anything. Um, I mean, you're essentially you're essentially <laughs> just starting all over, aren't you? Yeah, well, that was the thing, too, This I thought was really funny, is I thought I was going to have to rewrite basically every sentence, you know, for kids. And I got this great backhanded compliment from uh, Philomel, and they said, oh, no, your writing style is just fine for 12-year-olds. You know? So <laughs> I didn't have to rewrite that. Um, but it was the, the what really happened was focusing much more tightly on the action and less backstory, uh -huh. um, fewer side stories that I thought were interesting but weren't directly related to Perry Wallace, cutting back on some of the explanation of characters and just getting right to the point. Um, and But they, thankfully, they said, let's not lose any of the tension. Let's not lose the racism. Let's not lose the hard language, you know, because I felt that that would be doing a disservice to Perry Wallace if the story was dumbed down or I took out the epithets that were right. directed to him. You're just giving the people that did it a, a break, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're taking it easy on the people, you know. Yeah, and Perry's had people over the years say, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, like I was at those games. It wasn't that bad. Right. You're just imagining this. So I would have been playing into that if I took some of this out. Right. Um, and then when I go to schools to talk about the book, I, I usually relate Perry's story to uh, three things. One, to Jackie Robinson, who most kids have heard of. Mm -hmm. But I'll explain that Perry was just a teenager, whereas Jackie Robinson was an adult, married, had been in the Army, had already graduated from UCLA, played in the Negro Leagues by the time he got to the Dodgers. Um, Rosa Parks they know, and I'll say, just like she was told according to the rules of the South at the time that she was somewhere she wasn't supposed to be, Perry was told he was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be every time he stepped on the basketball court for four years. Mm -hmm. um, think about the courage that that took. And then the movie Hidden Figures, which a lot yeah. of kids have seen. And I'll explain that in the, in the context of being a writer, you know, and that any one of us can go out there. We don't have to be the big heroes that are being written about or made made movies about but we can be the ones to find these hidden stories and tell them and that I had done that as a student it was the first time I wrote about Perry 
and that they probably have people in their family or their school or their neighborhood that have an interesting story that nobody's ever heard before. And so they could all do that. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't there been a movie made about Perry um, is there, or is that in there's the works? a documentary do you in wanna, the works do you break, right now <laughs> do you want to break some news right here yeah um there was a, a 30 minute documentary on the sec network a couple weeks ago it wasn't an sec story thing but it was part of um each school gets a takeover day mm-hmm. and so the athletic department at vandy created a 30 minute piece about uh perry's story and the book and how it's kind of um, now in schools or taken yeah. on this life of its own and then a documentarian from Chicago has been working on a, a real, you know, feature-length documentary on Perry, oh, cool. which probably will come out later this year. Um, and then there is a woman who's a Vanderbilt alum, um, producer type in California that is interested in trying to develop it as a movie movie, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I've learned not to get hopes up about sure, that kind of thing, sure. but um, it can happen. Get, can we get this done fast enough to, like, cast Michael B. Jordan in this? Uh, <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah we, yeah, we can dream cast this thing. <laughs> yeah. Fantasy cast it right now. Um, yeah. Um, so it, it, we, we should note that uh, you come from a writing background. Uh, your dad uh, works for the Washington Post as an associate editor, which mm-hmm. is the Post's way of saying – uh, he writes books for a living, but uh, but still uh, has a shingle here at the Post. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, um, so your uh, your dad uh, won the Pulitzer in '92 for uh, for his work uh, on Clinton for the Post, and has written a bunch of books. But he he has not stuck to politics. He's right. written. He wrote about Vince Lombardi. Uh, he wrote about. Um, the uh, 60 Olympics and he wrote about Roberto Clemente. Yes. Uh, what, did you get any sports writing advice from dad uh, heading, headed into this? Oh, uh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I got all kinds of advice through osmosis mainly. He's not the type of person that like sits you down with specific rules. <laughs> don't, mm-hmm. don't forget to do that. Yeah. yeah. Even um, just like as a dad, like we didn't have many rules in our house. My parents were 20 when I was born and they were, Hippies from Madison, Wisconsin. I was you yeah, grew up so. in Madison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but, no, but it, when it comes to writing, sometimes it's, I get some tough love type of advice. Like, get rid of those cliches, you know, and he'll put a word in there. <laughs> um, show, don't tell, that kind of stuff. Eliminate unnecessary words. Um, look for anecdotes. Really go there when you're doing your research and soak up the, the environment that someone was in. Um but the interesting thing when writing the book was every time I finished a chapter, I would send it home. Uh, my parents are kind of old school, so I'd print it out and <laughs> mail it home as opposed to email it. you know. And then uh, I would get a package back that would have edits to the chapter, and they were always only from my mom, huh. and uh, which is great. I mean, I love my mom, and she's you know read my dad's stuff for you know 40 years now, but... Um, I would never get any comments back from the guy in my family that has written 12 books and won a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> right. you know? And so that was kind of frustrating at first. And then, um, I mean, I figured out at the in the end, like, why? And it was because he wanted me to feel like I wrote my first book on my own, you know? Yeah. And so um, it was nice in the mm-hmm. end. But at the time, I was kind of like, come on, <laughs> tell me what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong. I, I, I've got I to ask kind of what it felt like i mean you ended up on the new york times bestseller list for a little bit with mm-hmm. with your book what did that feel like after you know waiting this long to uh, write, write your first book yeah it felt great there were a couple things that happened where i tried to just be present and enjoy like what was happening and one was when um 
Frank DeFord sent in a blurb for the book. You know, and a lot of times blurbs are a joke, right? Like <laughs> someone's friend will write a blurb for them and they didn't even read the book, you know, but I don't know Frank DeFord, but I really just, I was like, if I, anyone could blurb my book, that would be so cool. And so I, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll read it, but I'm not guaranteeing that I'll give you any blurb or comments on it. If I don't like it, I'm not going to do that. And so the night that I got an email from him was really cool. I cried, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. um, the bestseller thing, um, it was really exciting. And also in the smallest competitive way, it felt good. It was like a middle finger in a way because um, I couldn't find a publisher for the book, you know, for um, until the last minute. And I loved working with Vanderbilt University Press, but none of the New York publishers were interested in it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an agent. None of the agents were interested in it. And everyone was saying, this is just a sort of um, story that maybe Vanderbilt people will be interested in or maybe in Nashville. But it's going to be a really, really limited audience for your book. It's not going to sell, you know, leave us alone. And so... Um, when, sorry, but when is this that you're pitching this around? This was... I did things kind of backwards. So it wasn't until I was almost done writing it. A lot of times it's just amazing to me that anyone in the past five years or more... I mean, any time in American history, if mm. we're being honest, but especially right now, would think, oh, a uh, struggle yeah. against racial <laughs> injustice? That isn't relevant at all to what... It's just... Yeah. Anyway, go so on. So this would have been back in 2013, probably, that yeah. I was doing this. Um, still. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah, but, I mean, it, I, mean I guess... Relevant. You could... And put it yourself in their shoes. A story about a Vanderbilt basketball player. It is anyone going to buy that? Well known, right. And I, no one knows me either. Yeah. It's not a UCLA player. It's not a Kentucky player. You're right. It's not it a, wasn't a book about a New York Yankee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many books about the Yankees and Brooklyn Dodgers are right. there? Every and it year? wasn't. So, it wasn't explicitly a sports story. Though. I mean, this is a right, Perry Wallace right. story. Yeah. So I had to convey that this was. Yeah, it happened here in Nashville at Vanderbilt, but it represents so much bigger. Um, but because I. You know, sometimes the coaches on great teams will say, no one believed in us, right? And then all the players will say that after the Super Bowl, the Patriots. No right. one gave us a chance, right? Yeah. So you use those little motivations. And so that was my motivation was to try to prove people wrong. Like, this could have potential as a book that people around the country will be interested in. And so I worked hard at um, traveling and talking about it and trying to get uh, reviews or sports writers to write stories about it, um, go to schools. Anybody that invites me, I'll go, you know? And so... I. But then, honestly, what happened was, um, all things considered, did a piece on it on NPR. And that kind of gave it this stamp of credibility and um, NPR listeners buy books. you know. So that was the first week it came out, and that kind of got things rolling. Have you been in touch with Perry Wallace recently, and, mm -hmm. and, and do you have a sense of his reaction to a lot of the stuff that's been going on and yeah. the parallels you were talking about? Yeah. Um, he, I talked to him yesterday, and one thing he mentioned is that he's interested in doing some writing uh, – of his own on this. You know, he's a professor in DC. He's on sabbatical right now. And so he has time to write and Perry's a brilliant person. Anything that's insightful in the book is thanks. It's not me. It's Perry. You know, like I had talked to him so many times and his, his uh, insights into racism and race relations are, are brilliant, you know? So I really hope that he does do this writing, but yeah, he sees the obvious parallels also. And uh, his family has actually sort of become involved in this in the sense that, um, Lipscomb Academy Middle School. Uh, all their middle schoolers read the book this summer. Oh, wow. And so they put on a program last week, and Perry wasn't able to make it, but his two of his sisters were. His sister Jessie from Memphis, his sister Annie, who lives here in Nashville. And it was um, really touching. The, these are middle school students who are completely aware of what's happening around them right now and asked great questions of these two women, 
gave them a standing ovation when they were done talking, and they had talked about the racism they experienced here in the growing up, um, how difficult it was for them to see their brother being harassed as a basketball player. And, you know, this is at Lipscomb Academy, um, right. conservative school, and their, their university they're affiliated with has been in the mm-hmm. news recently about some race-related issues. So um, it was an important setting. And when they were done speaking, they gave the, the, the ladies a standing ovation and all walked up on the stage and gave them a series of hugs. And, wow. you know, I was thinking that I think that was the, that was the same day that Trump made his statements in Alabama. And so I was thinking about what Trump was doing at that arena down in Huntsville and what these students were doing, you know, really engaging and having a dialogue. And so that was it was really encouraging to Perry's sisters. And when I had a chance to tell Perry that story, he was he was happy. I could tell. Andrew, thanks for coming in. We really appreciate it. Oh, this is my pleasure. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks time. for having me. Of course.